everybody, and welcome to White Line Fever Live. We've been gone for a couple of weeks, but we are back. And uh, thanks to everyone who's joining us on a few different platforms today, including the people who support uh, the various projects I'm involved in on uh, Patreon. Welcome, Patreon. Uh, before we introduce our guest, what a game of footy we just saw. South Sydney 26, West Tigers 24. Um, West Tigers never led, but they were uh, yapping at the heels of the Bunnies right up to the end there. Uh, so, yeah, really good Thursday morning where I am in, in London. A great way to start the day. And I have to mention, every time I do something under the White Line Fever brand, our VIP supporters, Adam Perry and uh, Annie Massey. Um, I don't need to look at my notepad, particularly for Adam Perry, because he's a great uh, customer of Maskell Browns. Okay, our guest is the author of Rugby League of People's History. It's been out for less than a week. Tony Collins. Tony, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Thanks for having me on, Steve. It's a great privilege and a pleasure. Uh, the privilege is all ours. Um, now I've read the details, I can take my glasses off. <laughs> um, now, um, I don't know where to start, really. I mean, we could talk, given that uh, your area of expertise goes back uh, to 1895 and beyond, what well, we could start in 1895, <laughs> but then we'd be on all day. So let's talk about your new book, uh, which is uh, um, uh, Rugby People's History. What is, as a layperson can you tell us what is a people's history what is that whole idea well the idea is that it tells the story of the game from the people who made it so you know most books about history of sport tell the, the great stories about the teams the players the matches and that's in it uh, there's lots of stuff about that but what i wanted to do with this book was actually also tell the story of the people who made it about what it was like to be a player in the 1890s or the 1930s, what it was like to be a fan. How you know? How did um, how did fans help their clubs in the uh, during the Great Depression? So it's really a story that encompasses the whole of the rugby league community. Whether you know you're an immortal professional like Harold Wagstaff, or whether you're playing for Eastmore Dragons, who also feature in the book, uh, uh, you know, Wakefield Amateur Team. Uh, it, co it covers everybody because. I think the, the important thing about history is that it's um, it, it belongs to the people who make it. So a, a people's history is the attempt to, to tell the story of rugby league to the people who made it. Right, and um, how have the first sort of, was less than a week of, of, of sales, isn't it? Is it less than a week or is it just a bit over a week? How, how's the response been? Just a bit over the week because it came out on the day, which is fantastic. I've got to take my hat off to Scratch and Shade Publications. It came out on the day of the 125th anniversary of the game on the 29th of August uh, this year. So it's been out, uh, what, where are we now? Yeah, about, about 11 days. So, and it's doing really well. Um, I've almost, I've, I think I've worn out two pens signing copies. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's really pleasing. It, it's, going to the, um, it's going to the people who, for whom it was intended. That's great. That's great. And, and can you tell us, I mean, there's so many different things we can discuss, but one of the things that has occurred to me over the last kind of week when I've seen David Moffat come out and say that he's starting a new version of rugby and there's tens and there's nines and there's sevens um, and there's, uh, you know, touch. I mean, you know, here in London, you know, rugby league doesn't have a huge uh, profile, you wouldn't think. But, you know, I see people playing the ball when I go for a walk in the park every day because they're playing tag rugby, which my business partner, Phil Brown, was involved in popularising here. And I, when, we, when we kind of, um, um, I guess, uh, venerate this schism, um, we do so because it was the birthplace of rugby league. But don't we now, 
have schisms all the time within the broader um, um, uh, game of rugby? Um, well, there's always been schisms going back to when it first emerged out of rugby school in the 1860s, because, you know, in, in a sense, the first schism uh, was with Aussie Rules, uh, which started off as a game based on the rugby school version of what was then called football. Uh, and then you've got American football, Canadian football. They all kind of uh, develop out of rugby in the same way that, that rugby league develops out of rugby. Um, and I think also, but I mean, the, the modern versions, and you, you know, obviously you get the same thing with reviewed various versions. Um, they're really a way of, um, they, they've become ways of trying to expand the game, making the game more accessible to people. And so they, they're not really, they, they're not really the same as the split of, you know, Aussie rules or American football or league and union. They're more the attempts of, um, of the different types of rugby to popularise their version. So, I mean, like seven-a-side rugby union. Mm. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a different game to rugby union. I mean, it might develop in 100 years' time to be like that, but um, it's part and parcel of promoting the game. And that's obviously, that's what, um, that's what rugby league has been doing with, uh, with Knights. Yeah, my, my point, though, is that it really, uh, what do, it might be a bit esoteric, but what defines rugby league now, given that many different, rules and in rugby union as well what the what defines them is now almost is, is almost who's sitting in a chair in an office it's who who administers them because there are so many different variations uh, now as i said from tag to right up to very traditional 15 aside rugby union that really the um the only thing that's separate i mean i guess the only thing that really separates them in a, if you were to come arrive from mars and look at them all would be that they're some groups are run by one administration and some groups are run by another. Um, and yet we attach so much emotion and, and, uh, and, and, and identity in, in these definitions that were, that were sort of um, drawn up 125 years ago, when in fact, since then, there have been many other meetings at the George, um, uh, as in rugby league worldwide was run by a different governing body for uh, almost two years um, during the period covered by the book I'm um, writing at the moment. Now, you know, the point I'm trying to make is that we we go back to 1895 because it's so important to us. But really, the, the the general code of rugby has has divided and subdivided, and all that all that we're left with now to separate them and and define them is that the administrations. Well, I think that, I think the thing that separates them, and you may say he would say that, wouldn't he? It's history, because mm-hmm. it's people, people, when people refer to the games, by and large, they demonstrate their loyalty to the game or their love of the game by referring to its past, what it represents, either in terms of the way the rules are or its social, its social history, like obviously a lot of people in rugby league do. Um, and, it's, and that is what defines how those games are today. Because as you say, if you come down, if you're... You know, if you're if you're a visiting margin and you come down and you look at all the different games, you're going to think, well, obviously with League and Union, there's not too great a difference to an outsider. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when you look at, uh, I mean, to be honest, I mean, the, the most, uh, the oddest division is between Canadian and American football, where it's the same game, just that one has 12 players, the other has 11, one has four downs, one has three downs. There's almost nothing to choose between them. However, what separates them is the weight of their heritage, that people uh, have become attached 
to the stories that those games uh, tell, mm. whether it's about uh, your nation or your region or your class or just how you want to identify with the world. And in a sense, sports have become, they've become like Greek myths in the way that the Greeks invented myths to explain how they saw the world, to explain the world around them. Well, we're the same with, um, we're the same with sports. If you're a rugby union person, you've got a particular, you interpret the world in a particular way. And rugby union's history allows you to do that. And it's, yeah, that's exactly the same with, uh, with rugby league. And in a sense, I think the, you know, if, if you're, you know, I can't imagine there are many non-rugby league people um, watching this. If, if you're like us and you know, you're, you're a rugby league diehard, then that history is something that you identify with. And it's a, it's a way of um, dividing yourself from the other types of rugby or the other types of football, in fact. Or the other types of people. Um, the other, yeah, the, well, the, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, that's what it comes down to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I did an interview, uh, interview last week and I was honoured to be thought of. I think um, you were also interviewed for this uh, documentary coming up on the BBC. Um, and, and I, you know, obviously it's an obvious thing to, to come to you. Um, if they didn't, they, they should have. But um, um, Tom, the director, made the point that if rugby league, you know, and this is a common trope, and, and, and it particularly comes into focus uh, around the Toronto Wolfpack, that if rugby league changes um, um, too much, it'll cease to be what everyone loves about it. And that, uh, it, you know, he, Tom's view seemed to be that, which, which we hear from a lot of people, that the game shouldn't stray far from its northern roots because then it will lose the thing that makes it different. Um, and, um, I, won't, I won't make it a leading question um, I'll just leave it there. But I wonder what your thoughts are about that um, idea. Um, it's complicated, as we <laughs> say. I think there's a, there's a very big element of truth in that. And that obviously, you know, I know people don't like using the word heartland to describe, you know, the, the post-industrial north of England where rugby league is based. But that, that's the reality of it. And that you know given the the nature of the history of the game and where it finds its strength where it where it draws its strength from then that's inevitable so yeah it's it, that northern english working class sense of identity is always going to be very strong however on the other hand if you look at the history of the game not only has that been strong but also the game has a long history of looking outwards and there's and again, yeah, you and me have been around in rugby league for long enough to know that there's, a, there's an essential um, division in rugby league between expansionists and you know, what um, you might want to call more traditionalist uh, members of the community. Um, but I think that represents the contradiction in the game because it broke away and formed the Northern Rugby Football Union. But in a lot of ways, it also had ambitions to become a national sport. I mean, that's one of the reasons why the Challenge Cup was started in 1897, because it wanted to be the equivalent, uh, rugby's equivalent of the FA Cup, a national rugby knockout competition. Uh, and also, it cons constantly looked beyond its borders, either within England or internationally. So, um, you know, so there's the, the, the very strong link with Wales, and then you get the um, uh, New Zealand and Australia coming into the game. There's initial attempts to try and get the game into France before the First World War. And if you look at the history of perhaps the most, um, the time when the game was at its most popular, when you know, 
crowds were uh, uh, were extraordinarily high immediately after the Second World War into the 1940s and 1950s. One of the things that marked rugby league then was not only was it very strong in its heartlands, but also it had this additional component of, if you like, cosmopolitan glamour because it had lots of players coming in from overseas. Um, Australians in particular, like you know, Brian Bevan and other Hall of Famers, um, that, you know, scattered around the different clubs. Uh, there are also Fijians coming into the game, uh, Tongans, um, South Africans, black South Africans who couldn't even play first-class rugby in their own country. France was there. You also had, uh, you know, Canada's first uh, experiments with rugby league were taking place in the 40s and 50s. So it's always been there. And I think there's no reason why the game can't uh, protect and preserve what it's always had in the north of England, while also pursuing that um, uh, that goal of, you know, it's got to be it's got to be planned and strategic, but what, pursuing that goal of, of expansion to places where its style of play and it, its sense of itself, its its philosophy, if you like, has a has a wider resonance. And I think the Wolfpack proved that, that that can be done. I mean, this is leaving aside how the club was run and all the rest of it. But simply the fact you could set up a club in Toronto and within a couple of seasons, you've got the best part of 10,000 people coming to see a sport that did not exist in that city demonstrates the potential there is there. Tony, I, I'm, I'm guessing that, um, um, or perhaps, given your area of expertise, you could, you could look back till 1895 and within Rugby League, you could almost draw a graph of ups and downs. Maybe you could shade them different colours for different barometers, whether it's uh, playing strength, media profile, sponsorship, expansion, whatever. Um, I'm, I'm guessing maybe you could paint that picture in your mind, could you? Do you think or not? Yeah, although you'd probably get seasick watching the the waves <laughs> of upwards and downwards. Exactly. Uh, so, so, so the reason that's a leading question because the I I I'm curious as to whether um, where we are now. So you know, where are we on? Just are, are we on a? Is any is any um, um, is any of the progress um, that we've seen in recent years permanent? Uh, judge judged on your sort of um, knowledge of, of these things happening before? Yeah, I think so. Because I, I think, well, if you look at the game internationally, then you know, I'm old enough to remember when the World Cup was played by just four nations. In nine, the first World Cup I can remember is 1970. Mm. Uh, Great Britain, Australia, New Zealand and France. And that was it. Uh, there was probably a little bit played in Papua New Guinea, but we didn't really know about that. But that was it. So in the space of 50 years, we've gone from just four nations um, to, you know, a World Cup next year. It's going to have 16. There's, uh, there's probably another dozen or so affiliated to the uh, to International Rugby League now. So, yeah, that's a tremendous strength. And I think even in Britain, where the game has been hit hard over the last 10 to 15 years by a whole series of events beyond its control, austerity, deindustrialization, and just the... Um, you know, just the poverty that is in that has come to uh, dominate the north of England. Um, you know, we're in a position where we've had more. Uh, there are now clubs played in pretty much every county in England, which would again would have been unthinkable in 1970. And even the gates that crowds, uh, even the gates that clubs get in the Super League, 
they've declined a bit since what 2007 2008 when i think it's a fight you know average of consistent average of 10,000 per season but nevertheless they're still higher than they have been since the early 1960s so you know we're a sport and i'm as prone to this as anybody else we're a sport that easily uh, reverts to the doom and gloom scenario mm. and again in 1970 uh, ron chester who was then a director of hull kr which happens to be my club um proclaimed said that rugby league isn't dying it's dead and here we are 50 years later and uh yeah we're, we're in a completely different space so it's the game goes up and down that's not to say it's uh, it's it's an automatic process of going up we're we're now in new circumstances that the game hasn't confronted before rugby is is professional we've lost a great deal of the the player pool that we had in wales I mean, obviously, there's still some players, you know, Regan Grace, Ben Flower, and, and so on, coming up from Wales. But the idea that the Welsh Rugby Union captain is going to sign for one of our clubs is not going to happen in the foreseeable future, as it did before eight, uh, before 1995, or as it could do. Um, so we've lost that. The north of England is um, significantly poorer than what it has been at any point over the last century. Right. Uh, so, I mean, so for example, I'm going to give you an example. If you look at, um, and you've probably, you may as well have seen this stat somewhere else. Um, the far, five of the uh, 10 English Super League clubs are in the areas that are ranked in the bottom 10% for social deprivation in Britain. And the other five are in the, the next 20%. Mm. Um, so that shows, you know, so the, you know, so that shows the difficulties that the game is up against. But, you know, there are, Again, using Toronto to some extent, um, Toulouse and Catalans, there are possibilities for the game to expand its market uh, and look to new areas that can bring in, uh, you know, wealth, support, and interest in the game when the north of England isn't doing so well. So, yeah, it's a it's a difficult time, and it requires some you know, strategic leadership that acknowledges these problems and can figure out a way forward. Uh, but um, I don't think things are anywhere as near as bad as what sometimes people imagine they are. So um, what do you, um, you, I guess there was some news yesterday uh, here where, uh, you know, the the Super League table was going to go on percentages rather than uh, competition points because of the fear that um, some clubs wouldn't be able to complete their schedules this year due to COVID-19. What did you make of that decision and, and can you, can you tell the viewers and listeners about the precedents for, for that sort of uh, system? Well, I think the first thing to say is that the being in the middle of a, a, a global pandemic is a new situation for, for all sports. Well, for society, the, there was a pande- flu pandemic in uh, 1918 and 1919, but um, sport was very different then. And also in Britain, in the case of Britain, the season really didn't start until after the, the pandemic had passed through Britain. So, it, it, so there's no real equivalent of what's going on today. The nearest equivalent is wartime, uh, when clubs dropped out, and um, the uh, in Second World War, the league table, the league, excuse me, the league table uh, for two or three seasons was decided by percentage, because. Yeah, obviously you've got the threat of German bombers coming and dropping bombs 
uh, on grounds, which is what happened, and a match has been cancelled at very short notice. So there's no way you can guarantee that all clubs had um, would play the same game. So you had to use percentages. So that that's kind of the nearest precedent for what's going on, but it's still not uh, entirely accurate because. Uh, they still had crowds. They still knew what, by and large, what was going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen with the pandemic. The other precedent is is more straightforward. From 1906 to 1930, the league table, the final position, the final positions in the league table was decided by uh, percentage win loss percentages. The uh, the reason for this was because not the clubs didn't all play the same number of games. There was a slightly ad hoc system where clubs would, by and large, choose their own fixture list within reasons. It had to be endorsed by the RFL. Uh, But the RFL didn't sit down as it does today and draw up a fixture list for all all clubs. And so because of the imbalance between the number of games that clubs would play, um, the final standings in the table were decided on percentage points. And that's why the, um, the championship playoff system was introduced. So the top four in the league would play off to decide who would play in the championship final. And the reason for the, for the playoffs was to make sure that um, the top clubs could be tested against each other, regardless of whether they'd played the same number of games or not. So it's not, um, it's not an entirely new phenomenon. We had it for 25 seasons, or almost 25 seasons. Um, and... You know, given the situation, it's an unprecedented situation that the game finds itself in. Uh, it's probably the least worst option that could be that could be chosen. And um, in a sense, I think it's a good job the decision has been taken now, rather than further down, uh, you know, down the track in a month or so when it would really become even more confusing. Right, right. Um, before we, I've got more sort of contemporary questions, but I guess for the um, viewers and listeners who don't know much about you, uh, we probably should. Uh, you know, fill them in a little bit. Um, what, how, how does one become a rugby historian? I mean, what, where, where did this journey begin? Um, well, well, I'm not, oddly enough, um, I'm not a historian of rugby because I'm a rugby league fan. <laughs> um, I, I was born and, born and bred into a rugby league family in East Hall. Uh, my father took me to watch Hulk when I was... Eight years old, his father took him, and his father took him. So it, it goes back a long way. So, you know, it's, I, um, I don't really even regard rugby leagues as a sport. It's just part and parcel of everyday life. Um, but that's not, the reason, that's not the main reason why I study it. One of, the reason why I study it is because um, when I was doing a, when I was looking around for a subject to do as a history PhD way back in the early 1990s, uh, I wanted to do something about the way that the changes in British society in the end of the Victorian era and the period up to the, the First World War. Things like the growth of the Labour Party, the trade unions, uh, the way that you know British society really became a modern society at that period. And after trawling around various subjects, it occurred to me that nobody had actually looked at why rugby split into league and union. And so I did a PhD on it, which became Rugby's Great Split. And then that one thing led to another. And so in a sense, what I've been doing for the past 20 years is um, trying to write the history of Britain and potentially the world through the medium of rugby about, you know, basically saying why rugby, both league and union, 
um, explain how the world is and how they reflect the way that the world has changed since, um, well, not since, not just since 1895, but going back to the origins of rugby in the 1850s and 1860s. So, so that, that's basically how, how I got here. And, um, you know, be, and I, in a sense, that's been helped because I'm a fan. And so, I, you know, I've, I, I work with a lot of people in the game, such as Rugby League Cares and the RFL on, on various heritage projects. So, um, so, yeah, so I'm both a disinterested academic historian and a diehard Rugby League fan. <laughs> Tony, would there be one lesson of history that you feel that the game doesn't heed and should? Was, is it, are there things that you... I mean, I, in my short time involved, long compared to some people now, um, you know, I see the same mistakes being made again and the sort of corporate memory of the game is not what it should be. Um, is, there, is, there, is there one sort of, um, you know, recurring... Um, um, bungle that you you see all the time. Um, yeah, I think at a general level, I think you're absolutely right that there's no uh, the game seems to forget what happened in previous seasons when it makes decisions. Right. And I think that, in a sense, that's the biggest problem, and that it's not able to draw the lessons or draw balance sheet of what it's done in the past, and um, you know, generally just goes right ahead and does a very similar thing. Uh, as what it does in the past. And I think to some extent, that's in the nature of professional sport. All sports, if they want to make money, they basically are focused on how to get a winning team on the pitch and how to sustain that team. And that that's basically the, the extent of their horizons. Uh, but the reality is that for a game as a whole, and for clubs as well in a different way, You've got to have that long-term perspective and you've got to be able to draw the lessons of the past so you don't re- repeat the same mistakes over and over again, which I think we do. And I think, you know, the, the, main, you know, the main problem that the game has always suffered from is short-termism. And that there's been a, uh, uh, a lack of willingness to um, think strategically over the long term about where we want the game to be in five, ten 25 years and work towards that. It, the game is too easily blown off course either by um, uh, finances, whether that's lack of finances or um, what uh, tended to happen in the 80s and 90s, people with money coming into the game and setting up clubs in Britain anyway, setting up clubs in uh, very unlikely places where the game was never likely to succeed and you know, wasting a great deal of resources. Uh, so, there's, so there's always been that. And the um, you know the game's inability to to um, to see beyond the present day and work strategically because I'm not aware. I mean, I might, I might be wrong. I'm not aware that either the NRL or the RFL has any strategic plan. Uh, most of it, I think, the NRL is driven by well, quite often, and no disrespect to your previous career, Steve, uh, by what's in, the pa- what's in the Sydney Daily Papers mm. um, or by the, the needs of um, satellite, TV, satellite TV companies. And yep. in Britain, it's not quite the same because obviously we don't have the same, uh, uh, you know, we don't have the same power or popularity in Britain as the game in Australia. Um, but it's very easy for the game to be thrown off course um, as we see over the past 10 to 15 years by picking up one initiative and then just dropping it with no explanation when there's uh, when it seems to be not working out or difficult to implement. Okay, I'm going to ask one more question and I'm going to um, sign off. Uh, firstly, I know um, 
that you want to, uh, you, you know, at the end, if you could just, um, you know, tell people how they can get hold of your book. But I will preface that by saying uh, the book is available in both Masco Brown stores, Masco Browns with a Z.com and Masco Browns with a Z.com.au. And also, I, um, um, uh, this show is on Patreon, Patreon forward slash White Line Fever. And also, at the moment, uh, to record this history, this weird time we live in, um, we're doing a, a, a crowdfunding campaign to print 10 um, match programs to finish the season with all the games in both hemispheres. Uh, so you go to Kickstarter um, and uh, look up Rugby League and you'll see that. And there's about 11 days to go on that. Um, the, you, this final question is not the broad brush, esoteric one you, you'd be expecting. It's actually about whole KR. You said you're a whole KR fan. How will the history of the club... Um, be affected by Neil Hudgel's departure, do you think? What fears do you have and, 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 and you know, and, and what impact will it have on, um, um, I guess, what people like yourself are recording in, in another 100 years' time as far as your favourite club? And if you could just basically, anything you want to say about your own social media channels and how to get hold of the book, uh, um, um, give us that as well. Uh, yeah, well, on Rovers, I think the first thing uh, that any Rovers fan will say is that we owe a tremendous dr- debt of gratitude to Neil Hudgel. Uh, when he took over the club, uh, it was in a very, very pitiful state. Um, its its future was in doubt, and and what future it had, it seemed to be um, to play at a low level uh, and always play second fiddle to our dear neighbours in West Hull, <laughs> which is obviously a, a terrible thing uh, for a Ro- any Rovers fan, anybody living in East Hull. Um, so, and, and, you know, it was Neil's uh, foresight and vision and execution of that that has brought us to uh, where the club is today. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it's testimony to him and to the players and the fans that, you know, we're still in Super League. Uh, and also that the game, sorry, the club has... And I think this is important and often forgotten about. The club has recovered its position in its local community in East Hull. It does some fantastic community work um, in, a, in a place where, you know, things have gone um, not well in terms of jobs and wealth over the past 20, 25 years. So, so yeah, he's done a fantastic job. Where this leaves the club, um, it's difficult to say. I mean, hopefully someone with a similar vision and similar commitment so the club's going to come in, and hopefully that commitment is a financial one. Um, in a sense, the club's an attractive proposition. It's got great supporter base. I mean, the average crowd is, what, somewhere around 8,000, uh, despite the fact, you know, clearly we're not uh, amongst the very top tier of clubs. Um, and, it, you know, it's the, the club's now developing a reputation for playing some very attractive and open football. So, so. But who knows? Um, uh, we just have to keep our fingers crossed and hope that whoever replaces Neil can do uh, a similar job in, in, in keeping the club um, where all Rovers fans want it to be, and that's in Super League and hopefully challenging for honours at some point. So, I mean, that's my two penneth. Um, personally, I hope he doesn't go, um, that maybe he'll change his mind and uh, we'll, um, we'll continue, the relationship will continue for a long time. But uh, you know, uh, he's his own man and we'll, we'll just have to see. Um, in terms of contacting me, um, you can contact me through my website, 
www.rugbyreloaded.com and you can listen to my weekly history podcast which looks at rugby league and also all the other um, football codes uh, so we talk, we talk about union american football uh, and even soccer uh, and the more importantly the links between all these games uh, and that's at rugbyreloaded.com and you can get me uh, on twitter on at collins tony that's awesome tony it's been half an hour i appreciate your time uh, if you uh, a bit concerned, viewers and listeners, that the uh, audio's dodgy. Don't worry. When I fix it up later for replay, the audio will be pristine. It is, uh, unfortunately, a bit of a, a glitch with the live broadcast. So thanks, everyone, for joining. And congratulations on your new book, Tony. And uh, enjoy the rest of the weekend's rugby league. Uh, there's plenty on this weekend, actually, with Challenge Cup as well. So uh, everyone enjoy their uh, rugby league this weekend. And we'll see you uh, perhaps next week.